Hello and welcome back to the official Sasta podcast brought to you by me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC at H Stebbings on Snapchat and the one and only Jason Lemkin at Jason LK on Twitter. Now I have to say I was so excited to have our guest on the show today. I'm probably one of their biggest fans and their journey has been simply meteoric. So I'm thrilled to welcome Owen McCabe, co-founder and CEO at Intercom, the customer communications platform that's taken the SaaS world by storm in the last few years with 116 million in VC funding from from truly some of the world's best VCs, including Bessemer, Social Capital, and Index Ventures, just to name a few. And as for Owen, my word, when you look at Owen, he can make me feel rather inadequate. At 31, he's already on his third company, having had his last company named Exceptional Acquired. I also have to say, we recorded this interview in two parts, with part one coming out today on Sasta, and then part two coming out on Friday on the 20 Minute VC. However, that meant the interview was an hour instead of the standard half an hour we usually ask interview guests to give up. Not only did Owen do this immensely kindly, but he gave up his lunch break to join us on the show today. As the English would say, top man. And such a pleasure to chat to Owen today. And I have to say a huge thank you to Jason Lemkin at Sasta and Mamoon Hamid at Social Capital for making the introduction today to Owen, without which the interview would not have been possible. However, enough from me, so I'm now delighted to hand over to Owen McCabe, co-founder and CEO at Intercom. Owen, super excited to have you on the official Sasta podcast today. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. Now, I'd love to start today with something a little bit different. As we discuss the founding story on the 20 Minute VC on Friday that comes out, I want to start today then with the early days of Intercom and how Intercom broke out with seemingly lots of competitive products and a need to install before you buy process. So how was that for you? A lot of it came from our extreme naivety uh, about the challenge that we were facing, quite frankly. Um, I think if we went into it today, we would realize that the process of fundamentally creating a brand new category of inventing a fully new thing, a thing that you can't exactly name, quite insurmountable. It's far easier to either copy a person, so make like the new version of a thing, or try and disrupt a person, like the down market version of a thing, or try and create like a variant, like an X for Y. It's just much easier. The upside is much smaller. So if you if you try and enter a market that already exists, you're going to have to share it with them. Um, but the chance of some degree of success is much, 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 much higher. We didn't know that. We were naive little kids, uh, people passionate about our craft, which was software design and development. We were also passionate about business. Uh, we were passionate about internet business and the internet full stop. And we set out just to create this thing we thought would be cool. And it was uh, nothing but cool until it was successful all of a sudden. You know, we just focused on building one thing after another. It started um, by building this little in-app thing that would let us uh, speak directly to customers inside, a, a, you know, your app or your site. No one had built that before. They all relied on email to contact people. And then after we built it, we said, wouldn't it be cool if you could let people reply to it? And then once they replied to it, we said, wouldn't it be cool if you could manage those replies inside Intercom? And then once we did that, we were like, wouldn't it be cool if you could like create assignment and workflows and then actually enrich those conversations with user data? And, you know, one thing led to another where we had this like blob of a thing, a platform called Intercom. We didn't have a uh, way to describe it because there was no way to describe it. And we just stuck to our guns and our principles, honestly, very, 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 very naively. Uh, the most likely outcome was that uh, after a number of years, we would have said, holy shit, that was really, 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 really silly. But in this instance, 
it turned out that some part of our intuition was correct and in other parts we were lucky as hell that the world needed this new thing and uh, here we are today I guess. Um, so in terms of category creation I'm, I'm really intrigued in terms of was it such a nascent and obvious problem that when you released the product it was immediately adopted or was it more a case of you actually had to do the hard sell of persuading someone that this new category was worth their investment? We had to do the hard sell and that starts to answer your second question. We did need people to install Intercom so that we could kind of facilitate these in-app conversations or that we could actually uh, sync with their user database. Um, so we required an integration. Uh, you know, I, I've long been a believer in turning every challenge into an opportunity and our opportunity there was that once you would get someone to actually make this investment, they were far more likely to give it further time to make it work and then actually uh, it was sticky too. They'd have to invest time in pulling it out also. So there was definitely a silver lining to that. Uh, but we had to give people a very hard sell and we we first relied on our on our friends, people we already knew, people who would do us a favor to try it. Um, once you tried it, it was really clear. Like once you actually tried it, like all the initial tweets about Intercom said, what do we do before this? Which was, it really resonated with me because what you did before that was really obviously dumb. You'd use like half a dozen apps different people in the company were on different services no one was on the same page about the customer it all relied on shitty email um, you didn't know who you were talking to if you got an email through a help desk you'd have to like look up that email address to see if they had an account with you if you wanted to like actually message people you'd have to like generate a new email list with a developer and import it into an email marketing app all of it was clunky and old but they needed to see and feel the damn thing you see that with like new categories if you remember all the initial adverts for the first generation iPhone simply showed um, someone using the phone. Like literally one of the whole TV spots was uh, someone answering the phone. And, and, and it was on a blank background as far as I can recall. And it was very simple in real use cases. So sometimes you have to feel the damn thing uh, to know that it's valuable. And so we needed to convince people to actually try it and feel it. And a lot of our marketing efforts after that and the way in which we scaled actually depended on uh, word of mouth and uh, uh, customers convincing other customers. You know, It was very much like a kind of viral hard sell. We'd sell these initial folks and then they'd sell their friends. And that's how we grew. And I, re- I really want to get onto the scaling there, but I do have to ask first, we're often told by head of sales that founders should always sell up to a million ARR. What was your transition point between between you and Des selling the product yourselves and doing the hard sell? And then when did it transition to you building out a sales team and you really realizing the PMF that you'd achieved? Yeah, well, so the first thing I'll say is that there are absolutely no rules. And uh, $1 million ARR is suspiciously uh, perfect, um, such that I would propose that um, that rule is not valid. What actually happened in our instance, our case was that kind of like the growth got away from us. Uh, and we sold to, you know, initially very small customers such that the volume became pretty damn big uh, and way too much for us to be able to uh, work directly with people, you know. So we probably convinced manually the first 50 people to use Intercom. Uh, but after that, pretty quickly, they had gone at gone ahead and told their friends like holy shit you got to try this thing and those folks use it and then they told their friends holy shit you got to try this thing and by then it was kind of too late we kind of it didn't make sense for us to be manually involved we were involved at a higher level then later on when we started to hear from some bigger customers who both 
needed extra time and attention to understand what Intercom was and to uh, learn how to use the product, but also would pay enough to legitimize human intervention. We then started to look at the potential benefits from uh, a salesperson or a sales team. And we started with just one person and had them talk to these bigger folks and uh, waited to see what would happen. We didn't use like any metrics or or numbers-based approach, we could just see that when these bigger folks actually got to talk to a human, things went better. Um, and that was it. We, you know, That one person hired two people. Uh, that was two years ago. We now have a sales team of like 45 people. Uh, and for the most part, they're simply still just fielding questions from bigger companies and customers who have a lot of very specific questions, who need the relationship to know that we're not going anywhere. Maybe they need insight into our roadmap. Uh, maybe they uh, need help demoing the product to other um, colleagues of theirs. Maybe they need some you know uh, help with integration or like custom terms and conditions they might want to pay in a certain way anytime a company has requirements outside the mainstream outside of the things that you might be able to provide to the masses automatically um, that's when humans are a one can be a wonderful addition and we see our salespeople as very much part of the service that we deliver people pay for intercom uh, when they work with the sales team not just for our software but also for the great empathetic uh, knowledgeable humans that are going to help them get the most fast out of the product and obviously you mentioned the sales team there uh, the sales team obviously have to work with the pricing and I'd love to hear this is one from Jason with, with a yep. relatively low uh, ACV it means obviously you need to have a big big critical mass to, yep. to really warrant the valuations so how do you approach pricing mechanisms at Intercom then and, and what was the thought process behind this relatively lower price yeah, I read this book called Pricing on Purpose a good 10 years ago, and it espoused uh, value-based pricing. It uh, drilled into me the idea that uh, price comes not from how much uh, service or a product or a commodity costs, but how much value a person can extract from the product, service, or commodity, um, whatever it is. And so we obsessed quite a bit early on about the value that people could get from it. And we also thought about the metrics um, that might best measure the value that any individual customer um, was getting from Intercom. Uh, Most SaaS companies simply copy the pricing of other SaaS companies. It's incredibly incestuous in that respect. And that's why there's actually a very significant lack of innovation across all software, in my uh, humble opinion, not just in pricing, but across the board. People are just looking to others to find out what to do. Uh, Again, call it pride, call it anything else. We just couldn't copy people. We couldn't look at people. We always would ask ourselves, what's the best thing for us, for Intercom, for our customers? We uh, looked at a range of different metrics. We experimented a range of different pricing models. We had nine, we've had nine different pricing models at this stage. It requires a lot of work. We have a whole growth team, engineers and designers, and uh, an analytics team uh, who would measure this. It caused a lot of friction and pain along the way. A lot of people were not happy. It's hard to uh, satisfy absolutely everyone, uh, but the vast majority of customers are incredibly happy with our pricing and find it to be fair. It starts cheap and gets more expensive as you grow and that's been a key component of our phenomenal revenue growth has been our obsession with um, trying to find a price pricing model that maps to uh, the value that people perceive and we're not done yet we'll do better and we'll find ways to make people even happier but that's been a, a key component and so if there's anything that was central to our philosophy around pricing it's value how much value is this person getting from this product what have been your biggest kind of learnings and takeaways from watching the consumer uh, the consumer experience with the price have there been any kind of push backs any learnings that you've really taken from seeing the price change and alter over time 
I think it's uh, one thing is like you must uh, practice extreme empathy. You know, no matter how unreasonable a person might sound, we've, for example, say decreased prices, piss people off. And it's too easy to say, like, fuck you, we actually gave you money back. But actually, if you like take a deep breath and say, hold on a second, why are they saying that? And like listen to them and connect with them. And of course, like the idea of giving people a cheaper price and pissing them off is a little facetious, although it is real. You will realize that nine times out of ten people are very reasonable and you have fucked up uh you have not truly understood or appreciated them um you have taken for granted uh, the ease with which they might be able to understand your communications it's really really easy to get so insular and obsessed with your own situation but you got to keep in mind that not only are they using half a dozen or a dozen other products and services and they're struggling to understand the price of those products too they got a whole damn business to run themselves they're probably thinking about their own pricing. That one of the biggest things I would push people is to practice true empathy. Realize that nine times out of ten, any situation where you've pissed someone off, it's wholly your fault. Um, that it's very, very hard for people to understand, um, you know, communications in general because they have a lot to deal with, and it's unlikely that when you're dealing with folks, we have like you know many, many, many thousands of customers. When, we, when you're dealing with folks at scale. You know, there's going to be some percentage that will misinterpret uh, the communication and it's still all your fault. That's the thing I would encourage. And the only way to, to fix that, well, there's two, there's two ways. There's one, cheat. How can, you, how can you cheat? One approach. You can cheat by building for, for yourself. You can cheat by solving your own problems. You will never, ever, 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 unless you're Gandhi or Mother Teresa, have as much empathy for others as you will for yourself. You'll never understand the pains and the problems and the travails of other people as much as you will for your own uh, company. And so if you can solve your own problems, you can cheat, you can skip a step. That's why uh, the whole lean startup thing and the whole get out of the building thing never resonated with me because I said, fuck that, we can never try and understand other people's problems. Let's just solve our own it's kind of selfish, and there are lots of problems in the world that are experienced by people who can't build software, and they need their problems solved too. But if your goal is to make a successful business, or if you want to maximize the potential for your business to be successful, solve problems for yourself. That's how you cheat. The harder route, which you must also do, even if you have an opportunity to cheat, is to talk to folks. And you know, Intercom's whole mission is to make internet business personal, and our whole approach is to make it easier to connect to folks and talk to folks. And so we just talk to a shit ton of people. Um, we have more conversations with our customers per customer and per user than any other company I know. We deal with tens, tens of thousands of conversations a week, almost a day now. And we um, have massive support teams and sales teams to be able to facilitate that. We decided early on that we'd put our money where our mouth is and just talk to a lot of people. And so you'll find all of our product managers spend a lot of time every single day just talking to our customers and trying to understand their problems and get inside their heads. Right. We're going to do a quick fire round now. 60 seconds, Asta. Uh, as, as the name implies, 60 seconds per question. How does Go. that sound? This, this one's going to irritate you, actually. Uh, biggest <laughs> advice to early stage SaaS founder before I got chatting to you I, I thought this was a good question now I think it's a shit question uh, I request permission to change question no, no 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 let's give it a shot okay let's um, give it a shot biggest advice please only work on stuff you care about please only work on things you understand life's too fucking hard I've ne- I, I personally have yet to see someone be fantastically successful solving a problem they don't understand why the move to the US you know tech is still tiny I would argue that there's maybe only a thousand humans in the world in tech doing 
valuable and important things today or at the core of, of value and important, valuable and important companies. Um, humans still have no better way to richly and deeply connect than by getting in the same physical place. And just like for fashion, people go to certain cities and for finance, people go to certain cities and for movies, people go to certain cities. For tech, people go to the Bay Area. They go to certain cities and there are certain hotspots around the world, but still it's the Bay Area in San Francisco that has the highest concentration of people who care about these sets of topics. And you need that community and you need that moral support and you need that help and you need that talent pool and ecosystem to maximize your potential for success. So you can be wildly successful at fashion and finance and movies and tech anywhere in the world. But if you want to maximize your chances, go to where the other people who are doing that thing are. And then let's do favorite SaaS reading material. Potentially fishing for a... Think of the name of the show here. Mm, oh, what is the name of the show? Hmm. 20 Minute VC? Again, again. <laughs> I mean, again, it's the Intercom blog, um, one of the most interesting places to learn about building early stage uh, products and companies. Do you write, Owen? What's that? Do you write? I don't. I leave that to the people who are good at writing. Okay. I, I, talk, I talk to smart asses on, on podcasts. It's easier than uh, writing. Um, but, uh, primarily, my, founder, uh, my co-founder, Des Trainer, does a lot of the content creation, creation and writing. He's an incredible storyteller. And then last quick fire, and then we've got one more question, long form. The most proud moment for you of Intercom, when was it? Yeah, we talked about like the you know some of the early tweets from people saying um, that they couldn't remember what they did before Intercom. One of our proudest moments, or one of my proudest moments, is probably seeing tweets just like that from people we didn't even know. You know, it's like the first person who says you're cool. That's not your mom. It's kind of a big deal. Still waiting for that one. Kind of like holy shit, this is real. Actually, the first couple times you see it, you're like, nah, they're probably idiots or they're wrong. But you see it enough times from people you do not know, you've never met. And they think what you've built is special or cool. Oh, my God. That is a magical, tingly, wonderful experience that everyone should get to, to feel at least once in their life. And then I want to finish today. This isn't a quick fire, don't worry. But I want to finish on a question from both Andy and Mamoon, Andy McLaughlin and Mamoon at Social. Uh, how do you manage a split team in Dublin and SF so effectively? And, and what's the strategy and thought process behind it? Well, the smart-ass answer is through half a dozen Hangouts a day, Google Hangout calls. Right. Uh, that's my life now. You know, we do so by trying to not split up teams across the offices. So we try to prevent, as much as is possible, people not having to collaborate intensely across offices and across time zones. That's a recipe for disaster. So we try and keep teams whole. So, for example, all our product and engineering teams are in Dublin. All our most of our all of our marketing team pretty much is in SF. Uh, that's one. Thing. Another is a lot of flights, big, big, big airline bills. Uh, another is trying to never forget that the other office exists. Out of sight, out of mind is a very real phenomenon. People, especially folks who've just joined recently, will just straight up forget about the other office. Like if you ask them, you ask a person in Dublin, hey, does Intercom have an office in SF? They'll say, uh, yeah. But practically on a day-to-day basis, it's hard for them to very tangibly, deeply realize and remember that there is another 150 people across the water on their team fighting for the same fight they're fighting for. And so we try and remind people we do like all hands across all the company. 
we do this thing called show and tell once a week where people demo the things that they work on. So we have a Dublin show and tell and an SF show and tell that's watched by both offices. All the meeting rooms here in SF are named after Dublin neighborhoods. All the meeting rooms in Dublin are named after SF neighborhoods. Some stuff's gimmicky, some stuff's not, but we try our very best to never allow anyone to forget that there's a bunch of other folks uh, rooting for the same cause as them in another office that they can't, if not have never seen. And then on people, and very last question from Jason, what do you think of the war for talent? What's your view? It's a, it's a big component of the silver lining that is our dual office approach. We had two offices from the get-go, and the reason we uh, decided to do that was that we got to avoid the war for talent that exists in the Valley. Um, we uh, got to play in a market where there are not 10,000 other very exciting startups. There's lots of early-stage startups in Dublin, but everyone else is just not the concentration that there is in SF. We, we kind of got to sidestep that in, to some degree, which has been just incredible for us just truly incredible for us i think it's really really hard companies live and die by their ability or inability uh, to bring on successful people i think that great companies have founders that can get people to believe in their cause that's like one whole half or at least a third of what it takes to build a successful company if you're not an individual that people will decide to not go to YC and start their own startup or not join a new startup in YC or not join a Series A company or a B or a C or a D or join Dropbox or Airbnb or join Facebook or Google, but instead join your company, well, then you're not going to have a company in the first place. So a big ta- a big big core part of the talents required to be a successful founder is simply being able to sell people on that dream and on that vision. So it's that, it's that skill and it's that talent and then it's avoiding it if you can and that's why we have our Dublin office. Well, Owen, you've sold me on the dream and the vision. Um, it's Seriously, though, it's been so great having you on the shows, both of them, uh, and I'm so grateful to you for giving up your time today. Thank you so much. It's been fun. What a top man, and a huge thank you to Owen for giving up his time today to appear on the show, and we cannot forget the kind introduction from Mamoon at Social and Jason at Sasta. Huge thanks to them for making the introduction. And if you love the show today and do not want to leave the world of Sasta, you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings, or you can follow the main man Jason Lampkin on Twitter at JasonLK. Likewise, you can head over to the main site, sasta.com, that's S-A-A-S-T-R.com, where you can find a whole host more articles, resources, and podcasts. We so appreciate all your support and look very forward to bringing you next week's episodes.